it's a lesson in each defeat and it's a lesson in each victory. And I think in order for us to take strides in the right direction, we had to go through some of the stuff we went through this year. Personally, for me getting traded, having to kind of learn a new system and still figuring out a way to survive and thrive. And then this team being able to not only make the playoffs, facing two elimination games, but also being able to take a team like the Suns to six games shows you the growth that we've taken as a young team. The playoffs is currently going on, as we all know, and there's a lot of series. Heat Sixers, Embiid has been announced as out, which means he's unlikely to play in game three. The Grizzlies Warriors series knotted up at 1-1. I still like the Grizzlies. Dylan Brooks is a huge part of the team. He'll be back for game four. The Celtics Bucks is a series I'm interested in watching and have been watching. The X factor in this series is the role players. I think the Grant Williams of the world are the guys who win these types of series. Larry Nance Jr., welcome to the Pull-Up Pod. In college, yeah, I was the man. I was the star. Coming to the NBA, like, unless you're picking the top 10 or lottery, you're not really drafted to a team to go get buckets. And so for me, it was all about how do I get on the court? And having Byron Scott as a head coach, he was like, hey, look, Larry, if you play hard and play defense, that's all I ask. And so for me, look, that's, that's what got me on the court. Welcome to the 136th episode of Pull Up. That's right, 136 episodes. As we currently record, it is Thursday, May 5th. This episode will release on Friday, May 6th. And on this date, May 6th in 1985, 12-time NBA All-Star Chris Paul was born in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Pains me to say this. Uh, <laughs> haven't just lost to the Suns, but CP is my guy. Happy for him. Happy for his success. His ability to be able to sustain greatness for such a long period of time. And to still be at the top of his game, shooting, you know, damn near 70% in the fourth quarter in the playoffs, getting to his spots, uh, mid-range maestro, if you will, keeping the mid-range alive, but also manipulating the game, right? Like being able to take over a game without shooting, but also being able to take over a game with your mind is extremely important and something that a lot of players can study and something that I'm studying myself, you know, as I continue to, to try to evolve as a player. It's one thing to be able to hoop. It's another thing to be able to think the game strategically and to be one or two steps ahead. I think Devin Booker, talked about it in the press conference. One of the things that's unique about CP is that he's always a couple steps ahead. One of the, the sharper human beings I've ever met, not only on the court, but also off the court. And um, it was fun to compete against him. I'm going to go back and watch the film, obviously, and, and kind of, you know, figure out ways I could have been better, not just, you know, making and missing shots, but tempo, control, pace, play calling, strategy, figuring out ways to avoid, you know, picking up five fouls and, you know, 20 minutes, although the last two were very questionable. The last one was definitely not a foul, but that's for another day. Um, just continuing to figure out ways to to continue to take steps forward. And as the body continues to evolve, as the body continues to get older, you have to think smarter, you have to think harder, but also have to work smarter and while working hard. And I think I'm getting to that that point where the game is slowing down and you need to continue to study the game, watch the game, learn from great players um, in order to take strides in that right direction. But CP and I have been friends for a long time. I've known him um, since I was 20 years old. I actually met him for the first time in person in Carolina at the uh, CP3 uh, point guard camp. I went down there going into my senior year of college. That was after we beat Duke. And he basically taught us a lot of tricks of the trade. And normally, you know, superstars and players of that caliber aren't as willing to share. Uh, but we went down to his hometown. We bowled at some of the bowling alleys he used. Uh, we played ones, we played twos, we played threes, but we also had specific skill instruction, ball handling, pick and roll manipulation, how to set up your man off the pick and roll. We watched film together. 
taught us a lot of ins and outs of the game in terms of, you know, clever ways to steal the ball from people, just little tricks of the trade. And normally guys are willing to share those types of things. And that kind of showed you what type of person he was. I ended up meeting his mom and his dad. And um, it's funny when we're playing them in the playoffs, um, his dad and my dad actually got to meet for the first time. My mom and his mom, they all got to meet. And uh, his dad was telling my dad stories about, you know, when he first met me, you know, 10 years ago back in Carolina in their hometown and how he was telling telling everybody, like, this kid's going to make a lot of money on the court and off the court, but he's just a really good human being. And my dad was laughing and he was telling my dad that we owe them money because he endorsed me 10 years ago. But it was funny to see kind of life come full circle, right? You know, you go to some guy's camp and you end up playing against him and obviously would have liked to perform better, would have liked to win in, in, in advance, but... I think the cool part about basketball is that win or lose, you're always learning. And it's a lesson in each defeat and it's a lesson in each victory. And I think in order for us to take strides in the right direction, we had to go through, you know, some of the stuff we went through this year. You know, personally for me getting traded, having to kind of learn a new system, being in a new environment, being uncomfortable and still figuring out a way to survive and thrive. And then this team uh, starting off so poorly, uh, being able to kind of overcome that you know, going through injuries, COVID, trades, and being able to not only make the playoffs with facing two elimination games against the the Spurs and the Clippers, but also being able to take a team like the Suns to six games, you know, having them on the ropes, you know, in a game that we could have won in game six at home with a chance to win it down the stretch to, to force a game seven shows you the growth that we've taken as a as a young team. But Playing and competing against CP was a lot of fun. I've learned a lot, and I'm looking forward to you know rest and recovering and getting ready for next season. But it's ironic that he's kind of passed the torch, right? Not just in lessons that I've learned, you know, as a 20 year old, but lessons that he's taught me off the court in terms of how to finesse, how to maneuver, how to balance my life, how to balance my family, how to still go after goals, be ambitious, and be successful while understanding the importance of taking care of home and also someone I can rely on uh, for information. You know, as the president of the PA, there's a lot of things that I have to ask him. There's a lot of conversations that I have behind closed doors to where I'm still learning and still trying to evolve. And he's kind of passed the torch to me in, in that sense. So that's been a lot of fun. This is going to be a, a fun episode. Obviously, we took a week off. I was in the playoffs locked in trying to advance, and I wanted to give ourselves some time. But stay tuned. We're going to have a mailbag session at the end. Uh, we're going to have a special guest Shout out to my dog. Uh, we've been teammates on two teams. We're going to have that at the end as well. But I'm currently uh, back in the Pacific Northwest uh, with my family. The last week has been a lot of fun. Um, it, it's great to see my son. He's gotten so big. He's 15 pounds. He was two feet, one inch um, in his last doctor's appointment. And it's continuing to grow. He's making sounds, eye contact, all those things. I'm on the night shift, so I do the 3 a.m. or the 4 a.m. or the 5 a.m. or the 6 a.m., whatever time that is for the diaper changes, feedings, and so on and so forth. So my wife can kind of relax and rest in between nursing. But it's the greatest gift in the world um, to to be a father and to to be able to be a present father is is, is something I don't take for granted. So that's what I've been really focusing on, you know, handling business with the vineyard. I recently put out a rosé, 2021 Pinot Noir rosé, in partnership with Adelsheim, still on sale at McCollumHeritage91.com for those that didn't get a bottle in that one sum. So just been working on those things and also watching games at night, planning my summer schedule, figuring out when I'm going to start working out again, figuring out my community endeavors, trips that I'm going to make things of that nature. As I talked about before, we end up losing to the Phoenix Suns. It was a, it was an epic battle. Very, very highly competitive. It was funny because we played against a team who we kind of simulate, right? Like Willie and Monty are very similar and their approach, their coaching strategy, their adjustments, their schemes, we run a lot of the same plays. You look at our personnel, 
We got a scoring guard in myself who can also facilitate. We got a scoring wing in NBI who can also facilitate. We got a dominant big in JV. We got bench players. We got great defenders. We got great wing length. Obviously, we got the young beast in Zion who's um, still you know working his way back. But our teams are very similar. Young, hungry. We're probably you know not as experienced, obviously, because we didn't go to the finals last year. But the way we play, the way we're structured is very similar. So it was cool to kind of match up against them. And I think having played against them and then going back to watch, some of the ways they cause problems is their pace, first of all. They play a, a fast pace. They move the ball. It's a .5 mentality, which means you shoot, you dribble, or you pass within .5 seconds. You make a decision very quickly, and I think the Spurs kind of emulate that as well. But that allows you to kind of always be on the go, always be on the move, but it also allows you to have opportunities to attack closeouts and play with an advantage. So I think, first and foremost, they do that really well. Their guards are very high usage, but very smart. Booker, you know, a lot of pick and rolls, a lot of dribble handoffs, a lot of single side tag action, which basically means you have a shooter coming out the corner. You got a pick and roll going away from the uh, shooter, and it puts the defense in a pickle where the help side has to either tag the roller, which means he has to bump the roller, the big man rolling down the, the lane. If he tags roller, the skip pass is generally open. If he doesn't tag the roller, the roller is open. And if the big isn't at the level, and there's no tag, and there's no help side, the ball handler generally scores. So they run a lot of those different types of plays to kind of put you in rotations, put you in positions where you have to think. And then secondly, their depth. They're a very deep team. Obviously, you know, we end up losing in six games. Booker was out for a few of them. But they have a lot of different guys that are capable of not only beating you, but capable of hurting you. And I think that's very important. They got length. They got athleticism. They have three-point shooting. And they have a lot of players who are capable of performing outside of their roles. Mikael Bridges, for example, right? You know, a guy who makes a lot of money. He's with my agency. Very good dude. Known for his defense, but also can shoot, you know, damn near 40 or, or, or above from three. He can attack closeouts, can hit the midi, can run a pick and roll, end up scoring 30-some points in a game. Kind of changed the series. A couple nights ago, I watched their game. Aiton gets in foul trouble, right? Only plays 18 minutes the entire game. This is a guy who's shooting almost 70% from the field. He's, he's breaking records in playoffs for efficiency, getting, you know, basically 25 and 10 a night. Great touch around the basket. A lethal pick-and-pop player for their offense. Goes out in foul trouble. Their backup is JaVale McGee, a guy who shot 70-plus percent against us in the playoffs. Long, athletic, can dunk, lob threat, nice jump hook, runs the floor like a deer, can switch one through five. He gets in foul trouble, plays nine minutes. Enter Bismack Biombo, another guy who's played a lot of basketball in his career. He's smart. He's heady. Plays different types of roles. They signed him earlier in the season, and he kind of changed their he changed their depth. Right? They had some injuries. Some guys were banged up. He comes in, plays 18 minutes, nine points, three re- three rebounds, four or four from the field. But more importantly, was able to switch and guard Luca and pick and rolls. I didn't even talk about their bench: Cam Johnson, Shamit, Cameron Payne. Those guys who have been able to hurt you throughout the season in games, have been able to sustain and expand upon leads. And then the elephant in the room is Devin Booker, arguably the best player on their team. MVP candidate can score 30, but also can distribute, has become a better defender. Big shot maker, big shot taker. Jay Crowder does all the little things, you know, the glue of the team, if you will. Some nights he'll take shots, some nights he won't, but he'll guard, chunk the game up, do whatever it takes to win. They have a recipe for success. They have a recipe for a championship caliber team. And I think it shows. And then you got CP, the maestro, the head of everything. So it's been fun to watch them. It's been fun to see how they pick teams apart. They've been targeting Luga a lot 
throughout this series and just some stats for the fans out there who enjoy stats. According to Kirk Goldsberry, Donchus was the screener defender on 19 ball screens in the second half, and the Suns averaged 1.81 points per possession in the second half when he was a ball handler. For, for layman's terms, the highest efficiency ever allowed by any defender in any half over the last three seasons. You talk about being smart. They figure out ways to target Luka, not just in pick and rolls, but in rotations where he's the help guy, right? So he has to he has to close out. Larry's going to talk about this later on the podcast, the importance of adjustments, the importance of a forward-thinking coach, the importance of not only being able to put players in actions, but being able to put players in actions off the ball as opposed to just on the ball. Those are things that you see happening with good coaches, with good teams, with good players. They're thinking the game in that manner. Hey, CJ, staying on Chris, you know, he went 14 for 14 in, in game six. And I think you were guarding him on that last possession where he hit his 14th shot. Uh, I think it rolled in and out or rolled in. Uh, it wasn't a clean make. But what were you trying to do in that last possession, knowing that he was 13 for 13, how this can be? What, what, was it, what was your mindset on that possession? I knew it was late shot clock, first and foremost. So I just wanted to get him to change direction. Generally, as a guard, like as a scoring guard, I like to get to my comfortable hand, whether that's left or right. I got a comfortable elbow I like to get to. Um, all those things matter. But as you said before, Chris was 13 of 13 before that shot. He had hit one three. A lot of shots were at the mid-range level. But you got to respect the three because late shot clock, he likes to step back left. Otherwise, he likes to go right. So when he stepped back left and hesitated, I had to respect it because scouting report says the step back is coming if he's behind the three-point line. We all know it. He does it. He did it to Luca last night. He does it all game long. Late shot clock. He loves a step back. So the clock is ticking. I'm late shot clock. I'm thinking, all right, step back is coming probably left. He hesitates and keeps going. He drops the ball. So I'm like, okay, he's going right. He's either going to be a sidestep or he's just going to raise up. He puts his head down on those two dribbles. So I'm thinking, oh, we're in the bonus. Maybe he's going to try to get contact. I got five fouls. I got to respect it. Still a minute and some change left in the game. So I try to cut him off, and he puts the brakes on and raises up. I get a late contest. Great move. Change the direction twice. He did the hesitation dribble, changed direction. Then he kind of stopped and put the brakes on. Really good move. He got to about 10 feet. He got to his right hand, which is his comfort spot. Make or miss league. I got to do a better job of sending him left once we get in between the three-point line, but that's on me. But that's also him just being a vet, being able to get to his spots, understanding time and score. He had me right where he wanted me. I got five fouls. I'm guarding him on the island. It's late shot clock. I know he has to shoot it, but I don't know what shot he's going to take. And I think that's just a credit to him. Played a, you know, He pitched a perfect game, right? He beat us essentially the entire series. But you look at the games he really beat us in, right? He scored 20-plus points in the fourth quarter. Uh, was that game one, right? We win game two. Game three, he plays extremely well again, right? Hitting big shots in the fourth quarter, kind of orchestrating things. We go down. We win game four. Go back on the road. He plays well again in game five. Then we have game six, right, at the crib. He pitches a perfect game, and we still, you know, have a possession down the stretch in which I, get, I turn the ball over. They trap. I try to fake a pass to make a pass, and they, I turn the ball over, and it takes us down two possessions. But it's the little things that separate greatness, right? Not just knowing when to pass, but also when to score, but also when to get to your spots. And he manipulated that game probably better than I've seen anyone do it, not just because of his efficiency, right? 14 of 14 is wild. But he goes 14 out of 14, all tough middies. He had a couple layups in between, but let's call it 10 tough pull-ups. He had 10 tough, highly contested pull-ups, generally a low 
percentage shot, but that's a high percentage shot for him. And I think what players have to understand is in the playoffs, in order to be successful, you have to be a three-level scorer, but you got to be able to score in half court off the bounce. You can only run off screens for so long. You can only post up for so long. You can only get layups for so long. You have to be able to shoot or get to the free throw line or both. I think CP, he kind of manipulates. He can get the free throws off of some of those plays, getting the bonus, running to the big. But his midi is why he's going to be successful to his 40s if he wants because that's a shot that doesn't go anywhere. He has a great lean. He's got great arc. 5'11", shooting over a guy with a 7'2 wingspan in Herb Jones. That kind of tells you, you know, where he's at with everything. Moments that are still bugging me from this series, missed free throws in game three. I went four for eight from the free throw line. Crazy. Four in and outs. Legit. Uh, we end up losing by, you know, we'll call it six points. I hit a three at the buzzer to cut it to three. But every point matters in the playoffs. Some of the turnovers that I had, being able to take care of the ball better, being able to put my team in position better. Makes or misses, you can't really control that, right? Like, I prepare. I watch film. I get into the gym. I do those things. You can control free throws, turnovers, decision-making. Foul trouble in the last game. I got to be on the court, right? Like, regardless of how the game's being called, I got to give ourselves a chance to win. I got to give myself a chance to be the best player. And I can't do that if I have to sit for 37 minutes of real time because I'm in foul trouble. So that still bothers me to this day for sure. And um, the turnover down the stretch, right? Like all in all, like a lot of stuff happened, but you can't turn the ball over, um, especially in the half court, especially in the playoffs, especially in the fourth quarter, especially when it's a minute left in the game. So those are things that, you know, will bother me for, for a while, but, the biggest part is that you learn. You learn from it. I watch the film. I figure out ways I can improve and I'll get better. Off-season training started right when we lost mentally, right? Being able to kind of figure out how do I become a better player? Not just physically, but mentally. How do I take that next step um, in terms of being able to run a team, whether I'm playing on the ball or off the ball, being able to control a franchise's trajectory based on leadership, based on being selfless, based on being a servant leader, based on show and tell, right? Don't just tell people what to do. Show them. Go do it. Those are things that are really important in my development as a 30-year-old father, husband, um, brother, teammate, so on and so forth. So I think that's when my process kind of started. Now I got the calendars right here. I'm putting together my schedule for travel days, family days, weddings, workouts. I speak to my um, PT later. I speak to my strength coach later, kind of figure out lift days, rest days. I'll start boxing next week, hot yoga next week. I'll start table work. But I just want to kind of give my body a week to just be a father, you know, kind of um, enjoy being at home. But I'm really looking forward to training. I'm really looking forward to kind of bettering myself and coming back in a training camp with a, just a, a renewed focus and energy, but also a concentrated focus of energy, understanding what I have to do to, to be successful for 82 games and then what I have to do to be successful in the playoffs uh, when the scouting is 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 more in, intense, when the traps are more intense, um, when you're more physically and mentally fatigued. All those things. You look at how we got to the playoffs, it was rough. Like every game was a playoff game the last six games. Playing game against the Spurs, playing game against the Clippers, then we fly to Phoenix. It was a lot. So if we're better than the regular season, we don't have to go through as much to get into the playoffs. The playoffs is currently going on, as we all know, and there's a lot of series still left to be played. Suns Mavs series is currently 2 0 in the Suns' favor. And I'm not going to really go in depth about this series because I think it's going to be over relatively quickly. Um, Dallas may rally and get a game at home, but I think that ends fast. 
Heat Sixers. Embiid has been announced as out, which means he's unlikely to play in Game 3. The Heat are currently up 2-0, even without Kyle Lowry, which kind of shows you how good they are as a team, how much depth they have. That series will be over relatively quickly. I'm going sweep or gentleman sweep. However, the Celtics-Bucks is a series I'm interested in watching and have been watching. Shout out to my guy, Pat Connaughton. I, I talked to Pat the other day. I think the X factor in this series is the role players. Like You know what you're going to get from, from Jalen Brown. You know what you're going to get from Jason Tatum. I think the Grant Williams of the world are the guys who win these types of series. And you look at game two, Jalen Brown obviously played really well in the first half, scores about 25 points. He's efficient. He's effective. Getting to it. But Grant Williams scores 21 points, five rebounds, two assists in 35 minutes, goes six of nine from three, is a whopping plus 22 in the game. Oh, while guarding Giannis Antetokounmpo, a.k.a. the two-time MVP. He's the guy who can swing a series. Robert Williams, Al Horford, those guys are important. They're going to play a role. Pritchard's going to hit some big shots. But the role player is going to play a huge role in this series. And obviously, the Milwaukee Bucks are going to rely heavily upon Giannis and Drew Holiday with Chris Middleton being out or ruled out for games three and four. Pat Connaughton is going to have to play really well. Grayson Allen is going to have to play really well. And I think they will enough to allow them to get out this series. I like Bob, Bobby Portis a lot. I think he's a really, really good player. And I think the role players will play a key role in this series. Looking at the Grizzlies-Warriors series, knotted up at 1-1. No Dylan Brooks in Game 3. He's been sus- suspended by the NBA for his flagrant foul on uh, GP. Uh, I think he fractured his elbow, did some ligament damage. He's going to be out for three to five or four to six weeks. Tough, tough situation. But I still like the Grizzlies. Dylan Brooks is a huge part of the team. He'll be back for Game 4. But Zaire Williams is very good. They can go small. They can play Tyus Jones. They have a lot of different options Oh, and by the way, their point guard just scored 47 points, living in the paint, getting to the free throw line, hitting threes. He essentially did whatever he wanted. He went 15 of 31, 5 of 12 from three, 12 of 13 from the line, grabbed eight boards, dished out eight assists, controlled the game in every facet. I don't expect the Warriors to shoot as poorly as they did from beyond the arc. The Warriors went 7 of 38 from three. That's 18%. That's not going to happen again, especially at home. So look for Klay Thompson to shoot better than 2 of 12. Look for Steph to shoot better than 3 of 11. That's the difference in the series, right? They'll shoot better, but also a guy like Andrew Wiggins will play better. A guy like Draymond Green will play better at home. A guy like Jordan Poole, who's been sensational throughout this series, is going to get 25% of the cap next year. He's going to destroy the Warriors' um, salary cap, but with good reason, right? He's going to play well at home. Kaminga's going to get more time. Like They're going to be able to figure things out. To where this series is going to become very, very interesting. What's the solution with Ja from a defensive standpoint for the Warriors? You know, given the Gary Payton's out, is it as simple as Iguodala getting healthy, maybe throwing Kaminga at him a little bit? What, what would you do as the Warriors if you were the coach? I think looking at it, Iguodala's listed as out for, for game three. Maybe he comes back for game four. But I think sometimes your best defense is offense. Although, you know, GP's a great defender. He ended up getting banged up. He misses the game uh, after about three minutes into the game. And Jack goes nuts. But I think the best defense in their case is to start Jordan Poole. I would start Jordan Poole, make Ja have to guard, wear him down. He's going to be able to score still. He's going to be able to finish around the basket. He's going to get to the free throw line. But his legs will be heavier. His legs will be more tired. He'll be more fatigued if they're putting him in pick and rolls. If they're going to chase matchups with him the same way the Phoenix Suns are chasing matchups with Luka, that's what wears on you mentally and physically. Getting hit by screens, having to guard, having to chase, 
the split action, they throw the ball into the post to Draymond, they're splitting offset and screens. I think that's their best recipe for him not scoring 47 points is to make him more tired. If he's fresh and he's resting on defense the entire game, doesn't matter what you do schematically. Every now and then I might trap his ball screens. I'm picking him up full court. I'm just trying to wear on him. I want somebody leaning on him at all times. Maybe I go with size and I put Wiggins on him for a little bit for length. Tell him to back up, get a contest, keep him out the paint. You have to mix up the looks against players like that. Otherwise, they're going to go get 50. So CJ, looking at looking at who's left in the playoffs, we got eight teams left. A lot of great players didn't make the playoffs. A lot of great players lost in the first round. We got a lot of great players left. So what I want to ask you is to rank the five best players left in the playoffs in some sort of order, however you want to do it. Um, I'll just give you some options for some, some players to think through. We got Giannis, Steph, Luca, CP, Booker, Ja, Tatum, Draymond, Jimmy, Embiid, Bam, Jalen Brown, Drew Holiday, Jordan Poole. So a lot of options, but I want you to give me your top five players left in the playoffs. This is tough because there's a lot of great talent in this league. There's a lot of guys who are impacting winning, but I'm going to go with a, a bit of a bias based on resume, but also who's proven it time and time again, right? Giannis just won a championship last year with a 50-point triple-double in the closeout game, right? So he has to be on the list. I don't care if he's shooting 30% or 35% in this series against the Boston Celtics. He impacts winning more so than a lot of players, right? The rebounding, the points, the assists, the defensive help side, the impact, the finishing around the basket, constantly putting pressure on the defense. So I go Giannis for sure. Question if you want to, but I think nobody would question it. Second, right now, based on how well guys are playing, I got to put CP in there. Haven't played against them, whatever, you can call it what you want. But in the fourth quarter, like, would you want any other point guard making decisions for you right now at this point in time? Like, not just making decisions, but dictating the offense, dictating the flow, being able to hit a mid-range shot, a three-pointer, and finish at the basket, being able to get to the free throw line. Also controlling who gets the ball, when this book need a touch, when this eight need a touch, when do I hit the weak side to Cam Johnson? I think it's an easy decision to put him there uh, based on his performance, what he's been able to do, not only in our series, but in this series to help lead them to 2-0. No-brainer. I like Embiid a lot. I think he, he has a chance to win MVP, but he's currently injured, so I'm taking him off the list. Love Harden's game. Down 0-2. Not putting you in the top five. Bam, Jimmy, Draymond, Tatum, Luca, all tough. Love Luca's game. Huge, huge Luca fan. Um, I'm going to go Tatum. I'm going Tatum mainly because he got one win at home. He's split. He's, he's not going back to uh, Milwaukee down 0-2. He's played extremely well. He just beat arguably the best player in the NBA in KD. Um, in a sweep 4-0. Obviously, he had help, but he was the one really checking KD. He was the one really scoring on offense, facilitating, showing that he's taking strides towards that next step, which is, I'm arguably the best player in the world. Easy decision. Giannis, CP, Tatum. That's three. Four, I'm going to go Ja. It was between Ja and Luka, and I chose Ja mainly because he was able to get one game so far, right? He went and did what he was supposed to do. He had a chance to win game one. No one wants to talk about it. The Memphis Grizzlies could be up 2-0. Klay Thompson misses two free throws. Klay Thompson makes up for a great help side defense. John misses a left-hand layup. This guy just went and scored 47 points, hit five threes. They said he couldn't shoot when he came to the league. Makes 12, 13, 
free throws in the game. He's showing that he's a star. He's going to get a shoe from Nike, presumably. Uh, one of the next faces of the league. He's athletic. He's explosive. Led the league in, in, in paint scoring. Does a lot of different stuff. I'm done explaining. That's Ja. He's number four. Five. The Miami Heat are such a good team. It's hard to just pick one player and say they're one of the best. Like Jimmy's great all around. Does a lot of different stuff. They won a playoff game or two without him. Bam is a key player in my team, guards one through five. But I think he's a key piece, arguably a top 10 player in the playoffs. But I'm going to go with Booker, the Booker bias, right? I mean, you just said for four, you were going between Luka and Ja. So Luka doesn't make it? I did say I was going between Luka and Ja. But it's like, it's this crossroads, right? CP and Buck are like peanut butter and jelly. Book was in the running for MVP too, right? Best team in the league, most wins. So it's like, can I go 1A, 1B, right? Like, Luca's a very talented player, uh, but it's more, how do I say it? Jerry West, if you will, putting up incredible numbers, but might get swept. Hard, hard to argue, right? Like, he's going to average probably 40 points, basically a 40-point triple-double, but probably going to get swept. It's hard for me to justify it. I know you watch a lot of Warriors games, and I know ah, I forgot about Steph. you appreciate Steph's game. So, what are you at on, right. Steph, on Steph if he's not Steph. top five? <laughs> I said I would go with history, and history shows that you know what Steph's going to do when the lights are the brightest. He's going back home. I think he heard exactly what Ja said when he walked past him. He said, this is going to be fun. Ja just put 47 up on his team's head, a loud 47, One, a 47 in which he made someone fall. I can only imagine the type of shimmy shaking that we're going to see um, on Friday. Love Booker, too. Uh, Booker's 5A or 5B. You could argue him or CP. It's one or the other, but it's hard to pick both. Luca, I said it before, love his game, but he's probably going to get swept. Maybe a gentleman's sweep. Where are you at on, on heliocentric basketball? And can a team that has a heliocentric player like Luke, can they go far in the playoffs? Or is that more just a regular season thing? It's tough, man. He plays a very aesthetically pleasing game, right? Step backs and ones, getting to the cup, a lot of iso ball, but long possessions, high usage, a lot of pick and roll, a lot of matchup finding, finding guys out, seeking guys out is cool, but it takes a toll on one, the player that's doing it, but also takes a toll on your teammates. Catching grenades, not sure when you're going to get the ball. There's a lot of stuff that is associated with that. And then you want those guys to go guard, CP, book, banging down low at Aiden to catch grenades or you know get a couple lob pass, get a couple kick out threes, but the touches aren't really there. They don't really feel involved in the offense. It's hard to win like that. Look at the way the Suns play. They got high usage guards, but they still... Quick decisions are being made. Even when they go find someone, it's a quick decision being made. They don't really play around and play that 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 style of ISO search and find into the fourth quarter. The Mavs are going to do it from the start of the game, which is tough. And I'm not saying it's the wrong thing to do. I'm just saying as a player who watches body language, how players are moving, how they're feeling. Look at Jalen Brunson. Look at how he played when Luka was out. Look at how he's playing now. There's a difference. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking... Obviously, Luca's a brilliant passer, a brilliant player. Would it be fun to play with a guy like that, knowing how brilliant he is, knowing he can find you, but knowing the ball needs to be in his hands the vast majority of the time? Whereas, like you said, the Suns, everyone eats. The, the, the success of the team isn't necessarily dictated by, by one player. We lost to the Suns. Book had 11 points in the elimination game. Came off the bench in the second half. Steph Curry volunteered to come off the bench for the Warriors, arguably one of the greatest players of all time. Like, you got to be willing to sacrifice in order to be successful in winning this league. Like, 
in different layers and ways in, in, in which you sacrifice. I think people enjoy playing with Luca. Absolutely. He's a hell of a talent. He's he's polished as they come. He's skilled. He's on track to become a Hall of Famer, arguably the, the greatest European player of all time. He's, he's breaking records that only Jordan and Kobe have, have broken. But you have to have a certain type of skill set to complement that style of play. If you're a catch and shoot guy, it's great. If you're a lob threat, it's great. If you need pick and rolls, if you need the ball in your hands, it's hard to play against another guy whose usage rate is that high. It's just the way it works. It's only one basketball. Welcome back to the Pull Up Pod. I want to welcome a very, very special guest who also happens to be from Ohio, although he's not from the great part of Ohio. Can't know how that is. He's from Revere, Ohio. He was the 2015 first-round pick, first-round 27th pick in the, in the 2015 draft to the Lakers. Uh, he is two-time first-team All-MWC 2014-2015, MWC Defensive Player of the Year 2015, two-time MWC All-Defensive Team. He plays defense 2014-15 and has been my teammate on two different teams, ironically, uh, the Portland Trail Blazers, uh, and now currently for the New Orleans Pelicans. Larry Nance Jr., welcome to the Pull Up Pod. I appreciate it, man. That was a heck of an intro. Although, let me correct you real quick. The good part of Ohio is where I'm from. And first of all, Revere, Ohio is the place. Revere is the high school, dog. Akron, baby. Uh, Akron. You grew up in Akron. Akron, baby. Come on now. That's the saying goes, you are where you went to school at. Is that how the saying goes? I mean, Revere is, what, nine minutes from Akron? Just about. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> so it's all the same but I will give you I'll give you your flowers Akron is a, a bigger city than Ken I'm not going to say it's better bigger it's better a, yeah I want to take it back you talked about our Northeast Ohio you know background uh, we grew up obviously in different fashion but similar um, hard work in blue collar town had to work for everything we have now small school unheralded uh, not a lot of college scholarship offers, and we'll, we'll go into the storytelling aspect of it a lot. But you were 5'11 as a freshman in high school, much taller than I was, um, played point guard, ended up being 6'7 as a senior. What did you learn um, from your time as point guard, you know, at 5'11, having to kind of run an offense and then evolving, getting taller? What did you learn over the course of your time as a point guard that has helped kind of shape you into the type of player you are today, understanding the game of basketball and uh, the role you can kind of play as a 6'7 point forward? You know, for me, the biggest thing, the biggest thing was, was, uh, honestly was like, just kind of running a team. Like, you know, obviously there's, there are, there are possessions, you know, of course I'm telling you, but there are possessions in a game where if you can get a good look early, you know, take it for sure. But, um, you know, game management, and you know, who to get the ball to guys need shots here and, and, and that type of, that type of thing. But, you know, for me, it's really translated to what I do now and how I like to play now is because, um, you know, we're out there, there are oftentimes like, um, you know, being on some of these younger teams that I've been on with the Lakers and Cavs, you know, where a team will go on a run and we're still, you know, we got guys still taking quick shots in the shot clock and it's like, all right, you know, give me the ball, let's slow it down. Let's make sure we get a good, you know, make sure we get a good look and, and, uh, you know, make sure we slow this game down, see if we can get, you know, see if we can run our offense a little bit and get back into the flow of this. But, you know, for me, just, you know, being, playing with the ball in my hands at a young age was, was important just in terms of, like, um, developing a level of comfortability with it. Have you always thought the game the way you do? You talk about young players. I talk a lot 
about identity crisis, right? A lot of young players have an identity crisis. They don't know who they are. They're unsure of it. Or they have this unrealistic expectation of who they are as a basketball player and what their game actually does on the court. At what point did you kind of accept who you were as a basketball player, realizing that I can I can maximize my earning potential, I can maximize my career, but also my performance by figuring out my role, my niche? It's so funny. Like over the past, I don't know when it was, but the term role player has become like a dirty word. Um, and yeah, it never made any sense to me. Like, you know, you look at any, any championship team or any team that goes deep in the playoffs and you, you know, one consistent thing that you've got on every one of those teams is guys that know and accept their role and thrive and star in that role. So, you know, for me coming into the NBA, like, you know, just like everybody else in college. Yeah, I was the man. I was the star. I averaged my 18 and 19 or whatever it was. And, you know, coming to the NBA, like it's, you know, unless you're picked in the top 10, you know, unless you're picked in the top 10 or lottery, you're not really drafted to a team to go get buckets. And so for me, it was all about, um, it was all about how do I get on the court? And having Byron Scott as a head coach, he was like, hey, look, Larry, if you play hard and play defense, that's all I ask. And so for me, look, that's, that's what got me on the court. I played hard, you know, every single night, every possession and played defense. And so, you know, that's what, that's what really helped establish myself, you know, just as a, you know, just as a serviceable player in the NBA um, from that regard. And then once you establish that, then you can start expanding and, and improving your game. But, you know, I, I, I still think it's, you know, the, these young guys and the term role player, it's not a dirty word. You know, I'm, you know, I'm going to have a very successful, long career accepting and, and, and thriving in the role that I was given. That's a very humble way of saying I'm going to make over $100 million playing roles. Uh, <laughs> I'll, say it, I'll say it for you. Um, kids out there that are listening, high school, middle school, college, even NBA guys, understand that if you buy into your role, you have a chance to increase your earning potential. You have a chance to be more liked by teammates, staff, other organizations, front office, and you also help your team win. And what more could you want out of a, of a basketball career besides winning, making a lot of money, having a role, and being able to take care of your family? So understand that and understand that most teams, as we talked about, we've had a lot of conversations with our younger players on the importance of understanding how to play a role. Everybody has a different role to play on each team. We need good screen setters. We need guys that are going to defend. We need guys that are going to bring energy. We need guys who are going to show up every day in practice. We need guys that are not going to play in games but are going to be available to help guys rehab, to bring that, that juice, to bring that good juju. Everybody has a role, and I think that's what made our team in New Orleans uh, so unique is that everybody accepted roles. Everybody was cool with learning on the fly but also competing, and everybody is hungry for more, and I think that's really cool. You talked about Byron Scott as a coach. We're going to get into, um, you know, your NBA career, the coaches you played for, the players you played with. But I want to take it back um, to high school, right? We talked about this at dinner with Zion. Um, you didn't have a lot of college scholarship offers. Your dad, you know, Larry Nance, senior, um, was was basically taking drives to kind of figure out, like, all right, where's my son going to go to school at? He's a little on the short end um, in terms of height, but I know he has the talent and potential to grow and blossom. Talk to me and the viewers and the listeners about your recruiting process, how it went, how you ended up at Wyoming, and at what point you thought you were going to go to the NBA. Like, I got a chance. So, yeah, like you said, I was, I was 5'11 as a freshman. Um, and, uh, you know, my growth spurt came middle of my sophomore year in high school. And, and, and so I, was, I played freshman basketball my freshman year. I played JV my sophomore year. 
and I started, I started on JV my junior year. And so I didn't play AAU, not at all, not, not a single tournament until going from my junior year to my senior year. And by that time I was about six, five, six, six. And, you know, division two offers started, you know, division two calls uh, started coming in, you know, division three NAIA schools, you know, and, you know, we were getting letters from them and taking calls and, you know, cause that was great. You know, I didn't have really any real expectation for myself. You know, I wasn't, I hadn't been good at, at sports my whole life. And, um, you know, that summer I kind of came into my own physically a little bit and we started playing just a little group of guys, like you've named this group called the Buckeye Ballers, right? It's just this, I know you're laughing because you've never heard of them. <laughs> and I, there was a one-year team. It was just um, a bunch of guys from this area that, you know, that uh, just wanted to play. You know, we played in the King James Classic and up in the All-Ohio Tournament and, and actually qualified to go play down in Orlando um, at the Nationals. And uh, it was basically just, you know, just roll the ball out and hoop. And so, you know, I started really playing at a high level, really playing at a high level. And then I remember playing Trey Burke's team at, uh, in the, at the All Ohio Red Tournament. And they were there to watch, you know, this kid, I think George, I forget his name, maybe George McKinnis. Um, Trey Burke was there. Um, there, there, were, there were some high level Division One players. Did they have Sully? Was Sully on that team too? Nah, Sully was, Sully, Sully was a little bit older. Uh, Sully was, I think, one year older. Two, he, Sully was your class. It was close. He, he stole my Mr. Basketball. That's right. <laughs> Sully was your class. But, uh, you know, they had some high-level D1 players. And I kind of showed up and showed out um, in that tournament and in the game against All Ohio Red. So, you know, Western Carolina called. And that was my first Division One offer. Um, Wofford called. That was my fr- the second, you know, D1 school showed interest. Um, so, you know, played the rest of the summer. And, and had just, you know, it was basically Western Carolina, Wofford, um, trying to think Bowling Green, uh, Toledo, um, uh, you know, central Michigan had, had interest, but as I played out my senior season, all these schools just started dropping out. Uh, Toledo lost a scholarship, central Michigan lost a scholarship. Um, Akron, U and, and, and Dambrot, uh, told me and my dad to our face that, you know, I, I'm not a bit, I'm just not a division one player. Um, and I would have paid them to go to school at Akron. Uh, but you know, I'm halfway through my senior year of college and I wasn't committed anywhere. And, um, this dude, Larry Shiat, who went to, uh, I think it was Wittenberg. And so he was now the head coach at Wyoming. And so, you know, he did, he had never seen me play, never seen me pick up a basketball, but some guy called him from Ohio was like, Hey, yo, this Nance kid, um, might be pretty good. He, you know, he's bloomed late and, you know, you might want to come take a look. He's like, I got scholar. I got lots of scholarship available. I just took this job, cut seven players. So, you know, sure. You know, I, I'm not going to fly. Yeah, he flew out there. Didn't watch me pick up a basketball. Not once uh, offered me the second he walked in our house, um, just basically off of my name really. And then at looking at my dad, him being six eleven, my mom being six two and me being, you know, six, six banking on the fact that, all right, this kid's got room to grow. And uh, I took a visit out there and, and uh, at the time that I committed to Wyoming, it was that it was them and Bowling Green University. And I did not really want to go there. Um, although had I gone, it would have been me and Rashawn Holmes as the four and five, which would have been tough. Y'all would, have, y'all would have got a chip. Would have been tough. Right. And then at school, you know, I played my first two years and was 
okay. Yeah. I played my first year and he averaged maybe four points and got spotty minutes. Um, my sophomore year I started and, you know, was averaged about 10 points. And then our star player got hurt with the last two, three, you know, last two, three weeks of the season, you know, and that's when I started to really pick it up, you know, started averaging 16, 17, 18, you know, 21 points, stuff like that to pass the, the, the rest of the season and actually finish the season on a high note by, uh, you know, beating the brakes off of Lehigh, beating the brakes off of Lehigh. They were missing. So they were missing some scrub guard that they didn't even travel with them. It was crazy. They just, we beat the brakes off them at our, at our place. So I just want to go on record saying that you guys played us without me. I'm just saying. We beat the brakes off you guys. Was that the... Uh, I don't want to talk about what tournament it was. Not the tournament, but was that the... Uh, it was the CBI. <laughs> <laughs> you beat us in the CBI. Hey, we didn't just beat you. We Oh, man. We beat the brakes off you, too. They beat us in the um, the Sunday 9 a.m. losers bracket AAU tournament game. <laughs> in the consolation bracket? <laughs> the consolation oxygen 9 a.m. game. Hey, look, I don't feel bad because you guys didn't have your best player, but we didn't have ours either. The same thing, same thing I told the Suns. <laughs> um, sick thing to tell somebody. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, the, towards the end of that year is when I started really realizing, like, all right, I might have a future in this thing. And, um, you know, I had a big summer, big off season, and uh, came back my junior year and was, um, was tearing the conference apart. Um, you know, I, I think I was averaging 18 and 10. Um, in a, in, we only averaged 40 points a game. So I was scoring half our points and, and just, you know, dominating the games we were playing. And, uh, so I, I had just come off. We went to Montana state or we went to Denver, Montana state and Utah and UNLV. And then that stretch of games, I had 38, 31 and 32. And finally against, uh, against UNLV was against Christian Wood and me and him, um, went at it. And uh, after that UNLV game, I won National Player of the Week and told my parents, my coaches, and my girlfriend, current wife, that, you know, hey, I'm, you know, I think I'm going to declare for the draft after this year. I'm not coming back to school. Um, you know, I'm a, yeah, a first-round pick. And uh, the very next game against Fresno State, I tore my ACL. And so, um, obviously, that set me back a little bit. Jeez. Yeah. Set me back a little bit. I didn't obviously didn't declare for the draft, but rehab that whole summer and actually got came back stronger and more athletic. So yeah, I, I think um, I'm actually I don't want to say I'm glad that happened, but I think it made me a stronger person for it. That's crazy. I didn't know you. I forgot about that injury. It's crazy. We get we get hurt so often and throughout our career, but then we recover so much. You kind of forget right. about the injuries. It's insane what the doctors can do, what the treatment can do, what the recovery process is like for us as athletes now. But you talked about your college career, right? Four points a game kind of gradually got better and began to, to kind of dominate. Figuring out your role, obviously, double-double machine, can still facilitate, evolve, get drafted by the Lakers. Go from, call it Akron, Revere, Ohio, to La- to Wyoming, to Los Angeles. What was that like for Larry Nance Jr., first of all, sunny Los Angeles? And then understanding that you're getting, you're getting drafted to arguably, you know, one of the most decorated franchises of all time with the late, great Kobe Bryant. What was that like? What did you kind of learn 
from that year, that being Kobe's last year, uh, may he rest in peace. Last year, as a as an athlete, you know, playing the game of basketball and going out with a sixty piece in his last game. Right. Um, you know, getting drafted to L.A. was it wasn't a big deal to me. Like, obviously, the city was getting drafted was great, but the city was not a big deal to me because you know I was I'm a I'm a homebody. I'm a homebody. I stay home and I, I don't really do the whole. Didn't really do the whole scene. I brought my girlfriend you know, again, current wife with me to Los Angeles and, and, you know, we just got an apartment, got a dog and just kind of, you know, stayed out of the way. And that's, that's kind of how I've been my whole career. But, um, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was an interesting time. You know, they had, um, Julius Randall, who was just coming off breaking his leg the year before. So he was basically a rookie. Um, you know, I came in with D'Angelo Russell and Anthony Brown, um, so that, that was my rookie class. Jordan Clarkson was also there. Uh, it was a year before me. Uh, so we were just young, you know, just, just young, inexperienced. And, um, we had Lou Will, uh, Roy Hibbert were my vets, Nick Young, Brandon Bass. It was, it was a, it, it was a, <laughs> it was a unique roster makeup and obviously Kobe. Um, but, you know, just going about that year, you know, uh, on, on the farewell tour with him was, it was something that I'll never forget, obviously, you know, just especially, you know, circumstances now, of course, but, um, you know, just the way we would play in Philly or play in Boston or play in uh, Oklahoma, some of the best fans in the country, you know, Portland and Cleveland and, um, and everywhere we played was a home game, no matter what. And there's, you know, that comes with being in the Lakers a little bit, but it was even more so just because we knew, um, we knew everybody knew it was Cobes last year. And so, um, you know, just the things he, the things, the things he had, the things he saw, the things he did, the things, uh, we got to see and do just because of that year was impressive. But, um, even though his body couldn't do the things he wanted it to still, uh, he never lost that competitive, you know, that competitive fire. Um, I actually remember we went to Portland. Uh, you'll love this. You'll love this. He went to, uh, so we played at Portland and you guys, I mean, I don't know if I've beat, been beat that bad in an NBA game. I don't know if I, <laughs> to this point, it was bad. I mean, it might've been a, it might've been a 45, 40, 45. It was brutal it, at the, at the Moda center. And, uh, we're sitting in there in the locker room afterwards, like nobody's saying a word, you know, Byron Scott walks in and was like, I got nothing. I got nothing. That was pathetic. And of course, you know, Julius, JC, D'Lo, um, you know, myself, like we're all the young guys, like everybody in there, we're, we're wearing Kobe's, right? Like that's what we did. We wore Kobe's like we're with them, you know, we're with the legend. And he goes, he just, you know, B. Scott just like, I got nothing to say. Kobe, what, I mean, you got anything to say? And Kobe just like picks his head up, you know, in his locker. He's like, take my shoes off. Take my shoes off. Yeah, after that shit, like, take, take my shoes off. That's it. Leave them here. And so we took our, we took, we took our Kobe's off and put them in the trash can and, and didn't bring them. Like, we couldn't. He told us to take, our, take, take my shoes off and put them in this throw them away because I I'm, I'm not dealing with that. 
And I, I've worn, <laughs> I wore a pair of Kobe's like once again for the rest of my career. Just guy that hurt, that hurt, that hurt. How you like, come on now. How you going to tell me to take your shoes off? And he meant it though. The funny part, you guys looked at each other first. Yes. Like, is he serious? Like take my shoes off. And you know, nobody really did anything. No, take my shoes off. We took shoes off. I don't know what to tell you. It's sick. It was it's sick. sick. That's sick, but that's, that, that tells you his mentality, though. Like, he was so devastated and disturbed by the whooping that, that we gave y'all that he felt like... You feel good saying that, don't you? That, that, that you, feel good, you feel good saying that, that we gave mentality. y'all. You feel, good, you feel good saying that, don't you? <laughs> he felt like that wasn't the mama mentality, that we more so had the mama mentality than y'all at that time. But you guys were a bunch of young pups. And I think the moral of this story is, for one, Kobe is Kobe. But for two... Look at that team and with that roster and what you guys have become from that. Like learning, you know, as young players, probably seeing the game so different now, having that experience with him where like you guys were probably close to a lottery team, maybe. We were, we were lottery every year. Yeah, but it didn't feel like it because you sold out every game and it was just like everywhere y'all went, sell out show and the the way team was cheering for you like like you were the yeah. the finals favorite. Like you were the Warriors peak Warriors with with KD. Like they were like the away team watches Steph Curry warm up. Like the away team fans come early to just watch him shoot from half court. Like that's how it was for Kobe. You go from playing with the Lakers, right? And we talked about roles, being young, having to kind of play a role. Kobe scored 60 in his last game. Fast forward, you get traded to your hometown team, the Cavaliers, right? You play number 24 for, I mean, I believe two games. And then you get permission from the NBA to switch to, to number 22. Talk to me about what that feeling was like to wear number 22, understand that your dad, you know, has had the, the jerseys retired. And then the second part is, what did you learn from your time with the Lakers that you kind of carry over to Cleveland um, on your quest and uh, going to the finals and playing alongside another great player, arguably one of the greatest players of all time, LeBron James? So, you know, obviously going home was was great. You know, I, I, it's not something that I expected or or even wanted, you know, I had, I wasn't aware of that yet. It was just, I just wanted to be happy in LA, but you know, getting traded, you know, getting, getting traded blindsided by a trade is never good. Right. It's never, it never feels good. But the fact that I was going home made it, made it okay. For the listeners out there, when you say getting traded blindly, how did you find out you were traded? I got a, it, it was, it was via Twitter. So you got it. You were scrolling on your timeline. It's like, Oh, I'm going to Cleveland. I was headed to practice or headed to shoot around. I forget which one it was, practice shoot around. And uh, just in my car and just at a red light and was scrolling to it. It was like, oh, Lakers and Cleveland are, are heavy. You know, there's like a heavy in trade talks or whatever, whatever the term was that we'll use. And so I'm thinking like, man, who could that be? And then so I'm like, refresh, 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 refresh. And sure enough, Jordan Clarkson, and Larry Nance for, you know, Isaiah Thomas, Channing Fry at a first. And it's like, yo, so I shouldn't. Go to, I shouldn't go to practice. Like I, I didn't know how to act. Um, I didn't know how to act, and so yeah, I found out via Twitter. That's a sick way to find out. And I think it is. A lot of fans don't understand the the human element of a trade, right? Like even when you know about it, it's still a human element of family. The moving, like I try to tell people all the time, it's like imagine you at your desk and you get traded, and you got to report in like forty eight to seventy two hours, mm-hmm. like. Family or no family, like you got to go. You got to figure out if they're coming with you or not. You got to figure out where you're going to stay. 
everything changes. The funny part, not the, not the funny part, but the funny part is um, when you when they clean out your locker, it's like we play orthotics, right? So I'm like <laughs> making sure I got more orthotics. You're trying to grab certain stuff that you're going to need. And I, I think that the casual fan just doesn't understand that. Did you go to practice? Yeah, I went in there just to like, I needed some shoes. I needed, um, what else did I need? Just, just stuff, you know, things that are in your, things that are in your locker. I don't exactly remember, probably my orthotics and whatnot, but also, you know, I, you know, the training staff in there say bye to them and the coaches, I like them and, and all that, you know, teammates stuff just to, you know, pop my head in and, you know, say what's up. It was, it was, it was definitely an interesting environment. You get to Cleveland, you end up going to the finals. What were some of the highs and lows of that season? Any funny stories you want to tell, first of all? And then secondly, the, the differences and similarities between Kobe and Braun. Obviously, different parts of their career, different, different times in their career. But the aura, I talk about it a lot. Um, with, with basketball players, certain guys have the aura, right? Like they walk in a room, you can feel the presence. Kobe had a crazy aura. Jay-Z has it. There's Jordan has it. There's certain people where it feels like they're like a mythical, like almost like a mythical being, but like in, in person, like Kobe had it. Braun has it at times. What was it like going from one mythical being to almost like another in Braun? Uh, I'm just, just jumping from unicorn to unicorn. Essentially, um, going from one planet to the next. <laughs> shout out to my guy Zion Williamson. <laughs> shout out to Z. Um, but um, yeah, no, it was uh, that season was wild. You know, obviously, I started out the season in a in a place where we knew we were going to be in the lottery. You know, we we knew what it was going to be. We were probably going to get another top five pick. Um, to all right, now I'm on the favorite to come out of the East and you know, changing your, you know, learning how to, learning how to win is something that I'm so happy for our young guys, Trey, Jose, Herb now, like learning how to win when you're young is, is, is super important because we didn't know how to win. Right. So me and JC got there and we're watching the way these guys are going through shoot around and whatnot. Like, why are they so serious? <laughs> why are they allowing me? Why are they actually paying attention? And you know, so that took a while to adjust to, but you know, just that year and being around, like you said, the, the aura of, 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 of Braun was wild. That, that 2018 playoff run, like, look, I, I'm not, I'm not really, I'm not one to like, you know, gawk over performances and whatnot, but that 2018 playoffs that, that the 50 point that, triple double, that one, it, it was unbelievable. Yeah. I mean that what he did against the the multiple game winners leading leading to the finals against Indiana game winner against Toronto it's got to be an all I mean all time and then to get to the finals like he had a he had a fifty point triple double and the, and the locker room after that game was it was about as somber as I've I've been in a locker room uh, we all kind of knew uh, after after game one of the finals when the block the block charge call got got overturned that you know we kind of knew we knew that was a series but no you're right just like like you said the, the aura around those guys like kobe and Braun is like yeah when they walk in and when they if you've got your back to the door and they walk in that door you just kind of get the urge to turn around and look like something tells you like you know there's something that you need to check out and uh kobe had it all the time you know whether it was in the gym whether it was on the plane whether it was in the locker room all the time and I think he wanted to have that all the time. But I also feel like Bron, if he wanted to have it all the time, he could. But 
he's a little bit more personable. He wants to be more personable to his teammates and in that type of stuff. So, um, you know, so Bron, he, sometimes it feels like he'll try to turn it off and be, you know, be, be one of the guys. Um, but you know, which is, which is, you know, great within a locker room setting. So we go from Revere to Wyoming, to LA, to Cleveland, to Portland expectations, right? Coming into Portland, a team that had made the playoffs. What was it? That was eight straight. Oh yeah. Made it eight straight years, you know, a stable organization, a lot of things in place. And then it becomes not so stable. And then we ended up getting traded, but you did get to spend some time in Portland. What were your thoughts on being in Portland? You know, obviously play alongside myself, Dame, Rocco, you make some friends along the way. New coach in Chauncey, we have a lot of volatility, <laughs> Neil's fire. A lot of things kind of happen. Um, and then we get traded to New Orleans, which we'll talk about in a second. But briefly, we have to talk about your time in Portland. Outside of the wine, <laughs> any memorable stories on your time in Portland? Made some friends out there. You know, I, I, I like Lake Oswego. Um, yeah, I thought the fan base was incredible. You know, it was. I, I was looking forward to being a part of a, you know, like you said, they've been to playoffs for nine straight years or 10 straight years. Um, a stable situation. I was like, still looking to get to a stable situation with a, you know, with a Kurt, with a GM that had been there for a while. Um, you know, obviously coach Stotts had been there for a while. And so I was, that's what I was looking forward to joining. And obviously things changed quickly. I thought the people there was great and the food there was terrific. And, you know, like you said, I may, I made some, uh, made some good acquaintances while I was there. You have one friend who you're still a teammate with now and me. Two, two. Come on now. You can't forget the Snellican. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to my guy, Tony Snell, the guy who left me. Um, Shout out, Tony Snell. Guy who left me in the tarmac after the trade. Literally left me. Um, you get traded. We talked about this offline. I've had three coaches in the last three years. I went, you know, I was I was seven for seven. Eight for eight. I was eight for eight. I had eight straight years with Terry Stotts. Coach Terry, shot to my guy, Terry, gets fired. I get Chauncey. I get traded. So I go from Terry to Chauncey to Willie. Speaking of the trade... We're in New Orleans now. We're happy. We're thriving. We're vibing. Hair is out. We're happy. When did you first learn that you were going to be traded? Who first notified you? <laughs> Pre-trade, post-trade, and um, expectations versus reality. I'm a big guy on that. What were your expectations going into New Orleans and the reality? But let's first start with who notified you. Um, <laughs> this is a sick setup. Who notified this you? This is a sick setup. You just, you just, you just threw the lob. You just made me throw you a lob. My basically. podcast. Who notifies you pre and post trade? I'm just curious. Just walk me through. All right. So, so, all right. We'll say the trade. We'll say the trade just for an easy number. We'll say the trade was on the 10th, right? I'm lifting weights in the Portland weight room on the 8th. And so my phone's just sitting there. I'm lifting weights, doing whatever I'm doing, rehabbing. And you walk past me after practice and just point at my phone and go, stay by your phone. (laughs) That's so sick. And so me, I'm paranoid already because there's rumors and there's all this stuff. We knew the whole, we we knew, you know, shakeup was probably going to be coming. Uh, We had had a disappointing year and we knew shakeup was going to be coming, but you know, for you to walk by me and go, Hey, you might want to stay by your phone is a sick bar. That is a sick line. But I think the fans should know that. I was just looking out for your better interest, understanding that you had a little baby at home and a wife, and that the least I can do is kind of prepare you 
the baby and the wife for what could be occurring in the future. Yeah, but okay. But what they also need to know is that you were, you didn't tell me anything. You didn't tell me not, not a, not a thing. You didn't tell me nothing. You just said, Hey, you might want to stay by your phone. And when I was like, yo, when I chased you into the locker room, like, yo, what does that mean? I have a baby and a wife. What does that mean? And I said, you know, and you said, I'll let you know when it's done. You said, no, you said, I'll let you know more later. But fast forward. How many days was that before the trade? That was two. Call that two days before the trade. Who called you the night before the trade? No, no, no. I called you the night before the trade. Okay. Because I was on, because I was on the phone with Josh Hart and me, me, Josh and a bunch of, and a bunch of uh, mutual friends were on a group FaceTime. And he was like, they were like, yo, how, how funny would it be if you got traded for Josh? And Josh was like, like, well, they all laughed and Josh didn't think it was funny. And I was laughing because I didn't think it was going to happen. <laughs> That's and sick so that you I'm guys like, proposed that joke and then it became a reality. It's sick. And so I'm looking at Josh like, why aren't you laughing? And he, he calls me on the side. He's like, that's not impossible. You know, I talked to Griff. That's not impossible. And so that's when I called you. And you were like, yeah, you're, you know. I yeah, said, you're, call you're, your prob- agent. you're probably in this deal. I said, call your agent. You're probably in this deal. I'll let you know when it's done, but I can't, I can't mess up the deal. So I can't give you the term. But I also wasn't sure who was going to be in the deal. That's not my job. No, you're right. You're right. But contractually, I knew it was either going to be once Rocco and Norm got traded. I knew I, it, it was it was me. I knew it was me. When I seen there because, was a trade to the Clippers, I said, "Who's in the deal?" I was like, "No, nah, I knew I knew it deal. wasn't me or you. I knew it wasn't me or you." But long, they didn't have a they, I knew it wasn't me. Long or you. story short, your current teammate and pal warned you of the trade. <laughs> what did I yes. say? Let's 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 talk about this, man. What did I say was going to happen when we got to New Orleans? First things first, you said it's going to be a great situation. You said there's going to be, there's obviously all this young talent and, and big fellas not even playing yet. But most importantly, you said we're going to, we're going to get to these playoffs. And you, and you looked at me like I was crazy. We were looking at each other on FaceTime. I said, I had my, I had my New Orleans Pelicans hat on, I think, at the time. where I was, I was close to having my Pelicans hat on. And I said, we're going to go to the playoffs. And you were like, I'm flying to Chicago. Or you was like, I'm in Chicago about to get surgery done. I said, well, how long is the rehab? And you were like, I don't know, four to six weeks. And I was like, perfect. You'll be back just in time for the playoffs. Yes, yeah, that's right. I was in Chicago. He's in Chicago. The, 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 second time, uh, the second time I found on the trade via Twitter. Um, but, uh, but yes, yeah, it was four to six weeks. And you were like, ah, it'd be perfect. Just in time for you to get it, get a few games in and be ready, be ramped up for playoff time. But yes, I will say that you were the first to say the day after we got traded, the day after we got traded that, yeah, we're, we're going to go to the playoffs. You said, I'm not here to play around. Yeah, I'm not here to play around. I was, I was locked in. I told my wife the same thing. I said, look, baby, got to take care of business. Be back. But we did what we were supposed to do. We, we, Got to the play-in, won the play-in, got to the playoffs, competed against a team that has a chance to win a championship. Let's talk about Willie Green for a second. You you said you had eight and seven. Explain to the listeners what eight and seven means. So uh, I just with uh, with losing the Suns right here, I just finished my seventh year as a basketball player. Uh, Willie Green was my eighth head coach in those seven years. I started with Byron Scott, then to Luke Walton. Uh, from Luke, I had Tyron Lue, 
Uh, T. Lou got fired. I had Larry Drew. Forgot about uh, Larry, Larry Drew. Drew. I like Larry Drew. He was he was great. Uh, from Larry Drew, John Beeline, which was a saga. Um, after Beeline, I had J.B. Bickerstaff. Jeez. Chauncey Billups, head coach Willie Green. I had, Eight in seven. I had no idea you had all those coaches. I just been trying to find some stability, dog. <laughs> I think you might have found some stability. Word on the street. Word on the street says I think I might have found some stability. Willie Green. Yes. Impressions or thoughts of him before he became your coach? Now, after we've gone through, you know, the last three months, impressions and thoughts. So what's crazy is I I had obviously I'm close friends with Josh Hart, right? So I had uh we'll call it insider knowledge of what was going on in New Orleans, you know, the past few years. And, you know, they've they went from Alvin Gentry to Stan Van Gundy and, um, and Willie and Josh was, you know, not a happy camper there for the past few years. And so he was, uh, didn't have great words, um, about what was going on, but this year, you know, anything negative just stopped, you know, no negative words came out of his mouth. You know, he was, um, you know, he was hooping and, the vibe seemed great. Obviously, they started rough, but you know he he had nothing but positive things to say about the team, the, the organization, and you know Willie specifically. And so, uh, when I got there, I didn't necessarily have any, you know, I didn't I didn't really have any preconceived notion of of, of what to think. Um, obviously, I knew he came from the Monty Williams coaching tree and whatnot, so you know you, you know what um, you know you know what that entails. But he has far exceeded any kind of uh, notion or expectation I could have set, you know, th- there was a moment yeah, I knew he was a good, good coach, you know, but there was a moment in the playoffs. I think it was game, maybe game four. I think it was game four where he drew up an ATO to, cause Chris, they're, you know, Chris on defense, you know, they, they try to put him in the corners and try to keep him out of the action. And he drew up an ATO to have JV catch the ball at the elbow. And it was just a simple face cut, uh, cut right in front of Chris, who had his hands on his knees, the whole possession. And Herb cut right in front of you, ran the play to perfection. Herb cut right in front of Chris and one. And I like, I played for a lot of coaches. I played for Tyron Lou, who is ATIO, right? Like he is ATO king. But, you know, the, the awareness and ability to do something like that kind of on the fly is, is rare I've found. And so that's when I kind of looked at him like, Oh, so you really know what you're doing. (laughs) Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, everybody knows what they're doing, but like, there are people that like, okay, like this guy knows his stuff. And so, um, he's been great, but you know, that for me, that was kind of the moment where it's like, yeah, okay. I I, I like this guy. Yeah. I'm a big Willie green fan. I actually played against him when he was with the Clippers and playing against somebody, competing against them, and then like seeing how they interact with their family, their principles, their morals, their faith, how they lead through good times and bad times. Do they hold themselves accountable? All those little things. He checks every box, and then he's exactly who he says he is. Like He doesn't portray himself to be somebody else, and then you find out that like he's, he's a different type of guy. Like Willie is authentically himself every day of the week, good and bad, indifferent and other. And that's what I respect most about him because he could have packed it in, starting off the way they started this season off. And they said that he was a steady captain 
through good times and bad. And that tells you a lot about somebody. And it tells you a lot about the team and the players because of how much they all respected him before they got here and obviously how they respect him now that we've seen it. But I'm a big Willie Green fan. I like the way he coaches. I like his style. I like his approach. He's not afraid to challenge you, empowers you. He gets you to not just, you know, show up, um, show up to practice. Like, you, you're getting through it to get better. And I think that's a sign of of greatness. And I, I think the, the sky is the limit for our team. The sky is the limit for this franchise with, with Willie Green, you know, behind the helm. And I can't wait for us to continue to to, to build together, like have a full training camp. You know, it's funny. We were going through the playoffs. I was telling my uh, my brother, my wife, I was like, yeah, we're going through playoffs. And sometimes Willie would call something and we would look at each other. And I was like, look, I know a lot of plays that I've learned the last three months, but I don't know what he's calling. <laughs> I have no idea. It's just like those little things where a training camp, going through a full season, going through a full preseason, um, we're going to be really, really, really special next year as a team, as a unit, um, as a franchise. Mm-hmm. I think the sky's mm-hmm. the limit for us. I've already taken up 45 minutes of your time, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Two two last questions before we go. Um, favorite teammates of all time? Favorite teammates of all time? You can give me five or ten. Your choice. Five or ten? Wow, that's a high number. Five is, um, five is a starting five. So if you count yourself, take yourself out. That's five players. What are we doing? It's like players or like... Give me favorite based on personality, um, locker room camaraderie, the jokesters, and then give me the best five. Basketball. All right, here's what here's here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take our current locker room out of the equation. Yeah. Cool. Take me out too. Okay. Yeah. I know you, it's, I know it's you, like me. You weren't gonna be in me, it. Me, Kobe, Bron, but take me <laughs> take take us out. Um in terms of funniest, uh K Love is in there, Tristan Thompson is in there. Uh he's he's a special breed. Um Nick Young, Robert Sacre. And Lou Williams would be my five of funniest teammates. Um, now, uh, now, uh, wait, of talented now? I mean, my starting five is unreal. Give me your starting five. I mean, talented, I got, I mean, I'm hard to beat. Dane, Kobe, Braun, K-Love, and my center. Who's the five? I got I to gotta think. Um, I mean, I got to think of the bigs I've had. I've had. I had Roy, Hibbert, I had... Mozgov, I had Tristan, I had Nurk. Brandon Bass. Ooh, B Bass. I'm, I might say, I'm going to say Jared Allen. I forgot you had Jared Allen. Young Jared Allen. Uh-huh. Yeah, I had a young Jared. Hey, that's a five right there. That's a very good five. That, that five. That's a five. 60, 70 wins. 60, 70? I have, I have Dame, Kobe, and Brown. I'm just saying, like, it's only 82 games. <laughs> I have Dame, Kobe, and Bron. It's only eight games. You need a bench. I have a six man of the year on my bench as well, Jordan Clarkson. Okay, now, now I w- I would firmly say a couple back to backs might get you. Um, oh, stop it! Stop it! Stop it! <laughs> you think you go eighty two and zero? It's impossible. I could go eighty two and zero. I also I look. I have D'Lo. I have Bi from LA. I have Lonzo. <laughs> you I have L- Julius. So you got Labi. I have Labi. You got me there. You know, I, 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 you know, my team is solid. Team is I've very, been a teammate with some, with some with some hoopers. Team is very solid. This has been a great podcast, very informative. I appreciate you sharing, taking so much time. I know what it's like to be a father. Um, time is precious, so thank you. I know you got to be exhausted Eastern time. I'm exhausted, and it's only five nineteen Pacific time. It is this this kid life, this kid life. This morning, I got I got 
Dada at like 7 a.m. talking on my covers. Dada. All right, let's go. Let's go, baby. Got up, went on a little walk. So yeah, it's 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 about time. Uh, it's about time for some for some what? It's for some heritage '91 rosé. Hey man, pour for, up man. for, for, for some heritage rosé. I'm so I got excited. it on ice already. I'm so tired. I don't even want to drink. Uh, you getting the dadas? I'm getting it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. This morning better. he was cool. He was like, ah. <laughs> a little bit softer. <laughs> He just wanted something to eat. He was cool. But if you take too long to get that bottle, it's curtains. But I'm sure I'm sure I'll see you soon, brother. Um I'm sure, yeah, you're gonna see me I'm soon. sure I'll be here. Uh shout out to our guy Roko on the extension. I'm sure I'll be hearing something soon on the Larry Nance front. So hey, look, that's 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 between the powers that be. When I say the powers that be, that includes you, sir. So, you know. I'll be I'll be sitting here on on Nance Farms and just uh, waiting for a phone call from you. Well, Nance Farms will be able to force some more hay very soon, <laughs> very soon. But I appreciate you, brother. Tell tell everyone I said hello. I think I'll be back in Ohio in July. I'm gonna try to get back before then. But um, I think I might actually do like a little backpack giveaways, back to school joint on uh, Saturday, last Saturday of july but i'll tap in with you if i get my permission slip signed maybe i'll get there sooner you know how that goes yeah yeah we hit up some slices perfect i appreciate you brother have a good one all right sounds good dog take it easy want to get the mailbag mailbag and just a reminder to all of Pull up listeners, hit up at Pull Up Pod on Twitter or Instagram to submit a question to the show. We'll, we'll knock out a few here. Um, on Instagram, at Wyatt.Hatemeyer writes, What was NOLA's playoff atmosphere like in the arena compared to other places? That's a great question. I, I kind of told my family about this. Um, obviously, I played in the Oracle, the Royal, um, the old one in the Bay. I've played. In LA, I played in San Antonio. I'm trying to think where else. I played in Memphis. Obviously, I played in Portland for quite some time. And those are all great fan bases. Obviously, I'm a little biased towards Portland, you know, out of that list. Memphis, really good fan base, um, loud, proactive, wears the t shirts, throws the towels, waves the towels. New Orleans, I described it like this to my wife. I said, they know how to party and they know how to celebrate. And when you give them something worth celebrating, um, they go all out. So the roars that I was hearing, the Jose, 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 like they go all out and they fall in love and they fight for you. So that crowd was, gave me chills. Like that first, that first playing game, I had chills. But that first playoff game at the crib, like to see what that arena has looked like in past years, having played there. To see what that arena has looked like, you know, throughout the season and the comparison and the jump that it made to the playoffs, um, it's just a credit to them. And it's it's a special, special atmosphere. And I look forward to seeing, you know, courtside tickets are already sold out for next season. I know that, you know, we're going to have some buzz. We have some expectations. Uh, we're we're, we're going to get this season started off on the right foot. All right. At 11up34 on Twitter writes, how should the NBA address the complaints about media voting affecting player salary awards while also ensuring the high performers can receive increased salaries, especially younger players achieving success early? So I think just 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 to riff off this question, I think this is 
of reference to a lot of the conversations and Draymond's been having them too on his podcast about the the award voting and and the problems with that. I think there's problems definitely associated with the voting. I think Draymond pointed out that in nine years, there's a rookie that you know that's in the league right now that Draymond could have a say in whether or not he gets first team or second team or whatever the case may be, which could determine whether or not he gets 10, 20, 30 million dollar bonuses or, or or money associated with those types of bonuses in a contract. So I, I think there are some issues there definitely. I think there should be qualifications. I think um Johnson talked about it online. He talked about the importance of the bias that's are that are associated um with with the NBA, specifically the NBA voting and how, you know, some media, believe it or not, just don't like certain players. Uh, Eddie Johnson talked about it. Uh, some play-by-play. Some media just don't like players. So they're going to have biases, right? They're not going to vote, you know, Draymond for a team defensively. They're not going to vote him at all, give him any points for a defensive player of the year because they may not like him. And I think there's that human error, that human bias is associated with this to where they have to make some corrections. I do think there should be some rules and regulations associated with uh, what it takes to be able to vote, right? Like you should have to go to live games. Like you should have to have basketball knowledge of basketball history. Like you should understand the game and the way it's played today, not the way it was played 40 years ago because it's different. Well, I think there are some things that should be changed and that would make the rule better. But when you have human voting, there's going to be human error. And there's always going to be people that are unhappy. So that's just the way it works. At C. Gonzalez on Instagram writes, what do you think Anthony's ceiling is? And of course, referring to Anthony Simons. I don't know what his ceiling is because I don't like to put limitations on people, but he's special, man. He can dribble, he can shoot, he can run a pick and roll. Um, he showed, you know, flashes of what he's truly capable of with extended minutes, with an extended role, with trust, with faith, with freedom. I'm interested to see how Chauncey uses him next year, right? Like Dame is obviously a point guard. Who's going to be on the ball? Who's going to be off the ball? How he's going to play and serve in that role. But with him as a full-time point guard, with the ball in his hands, the sky is whatever, the ceiling is whatever he wants it to be, depending on the team he's on. Um, with him as a two guard, I'm not sure what the ceiling is, right? Because he's better with the ball intense. Obviously, he can catch and shoot, but he's best. And he's shown that he's best with the ball in his hands. We've seen what he can do. Honestly, haven't been drinking. I've been in prime father mode, like serious father mode. But I did have a drink um, before I left New Orleans. Shout out to my guy, AJ Diggs. We sat down and chopped it up at uh, Jimmy Lemur, however you say it, on the fifth floor of the Four Seasons Hotel. And we had a 2016, uh, I'm gonna probably say this wrong, but it was a Bordeaux, Saint Emilion, if you will, Grand Cru. Very, very good product, product of France, produced in France. Some of the specs on this Grand Cru is that it's among the Top 4% of wines in the world. It was definitely on the bold side, uh, more bold than light, more tannic than smooth, more dry than sweet, uh, higher acidity, mouth definitely watered, uh, oak, tobacco, vanilla, uh, earthy, more mineral side. You can find a well-priced uh, wine for about 50 bucks, depending on the year. A 2010 will probably run you about 51 bucks, which isn't bad at all. So would, would highly, highly recommend it. Once again, appreciate everybody tuning in. 
As always, make sure you're following the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your shows. And uh, hit the show up on social at Pull Up Pod on Twitter and Instagram because we're posting fresh content all season long. And as the saying goes, don't forget to pull up. <laughs>